0: Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is the word of God.
1: So we're back to the book of Ephesians, and uh, we begin to see the transition in this book. Uh, The first half of the book Uh, about the foundations of the church, the second half of the book, about the practice, what it means to be a church. And so we're starting to see this transition now as we're deep into chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 19, uh, the Apostle Paul, he prays. And his prayer is what? He says, may you know God's incomparably great power. That is the working of his mighty strength. Uh, And then in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, we are God's workmanship. First, it's we. The church is God's workmanship. And the word workmanship, we said, is that's God's masterpiece. That's God's poem. The Greek word is poema. So his poem, his song. We are the working of his mighty strength, his masterpiece, his song. He says we. One of the big ways that we see God's mighty strength Working out is in our oneness, our weeness. Paul says, God himself is our peace. Who made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So there are three things we're going to go into today. First, what is that barrier? What is the hostility? Two, how did God make the two one? Lastly, how is God our peace? So we're kind of going backwards in that verse. What is the barrier? What is the hostility? How did God make the two one? What does that mean? Lastly, why or how does God become our peace? First, we're going to look at what is the barrier. Verse 11, uh, the Apostle Paul says, "Formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. The Gentiles, they were the irreligious. They were, as a result, uncircumcised. And the circumcised people, they were the Jews. They were religious. And so these Jews and these Gentiles, the irreligious and the religious, they existed in a state of hostility. This is an age-old thing. Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, they were hostile to each other. They're still hostile to each other. It's an age-old thing. Paul's really addressing a real-life issue in the church, even to this day. Verse 14, there's a barrier. There's a dividing wall of hostility. And so Jews and Gentiles, they exclude each other. They hate each other. The religious and the irreligious exclude each other, hate each other. What's the root of this? Verse 14, God destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by hell, abolishing the law with its commandments and regulations. The law is this Old Testament view of what it means to be holy. The Jews, they were called to be holy. The religious, they were called to be holy. That means to be holy, it means to be set apart for God to be a godly people, a godly nation, as God's blessing to the world. It was God's gift to the world, God's treasure. When the Israelites came, out of Sinai, came to Sinai after they escaped from Egypt, God brought them across the Red Sea. He brought them to Sinai. He says, this is how you will be my treasure. You will obey my commands. So Israel was called to be a light to the world. The law was given to them so that they can bless the world with their presence, with their living. Jerusalem was a city on a hill. Now, Thomas Cahill He's a philosopher. He's a scholar. He's a writer. He's a professor. Uh, taught for years at Fordham uh, University in New York. He wrote a, a book called *The Gift of the Jews*. And essentially, without going into the details of the book, basically, what Thomas Cahill—he's uh, a famous New York Times best-selling author—he basically says this: Because of the mission of the Jews, because of what they called them to be, they transformed history's view of how life is to be lived. And they brought to us very new concepts. Here are the concepts, such as newness, adventure. Because the ancient tribes, the ancient communities, it was all about cyclical living. You know, they had no internet, no cars back then. To leave anything, to discover something new was a dangerous thing to do. It was a very dangerous concept. So newness, adventure, surprise, being set apart, uniqueness. Words such as vocation, and time, and humanity, and history, and future, and freedom, and progress, and spirit, and faith, and hope, and justice. All of these things were the gifts of the Jews. But the problem is sin. These things, these blessings, these gifts became a basis for hostility. On one hand, you have the Jews, they despised the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the irreligious, because they were lawless. They had no law. And they despised them because they were considered unclean because they had no law. On the other hand, you had the Gentiles. They hated the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were arrogant. They became arrogant. They were judging. They were self-righteous. Now we're gonna apply this today. Think about this. God gave all of you, God gave us gifts. Everyone here has talents. Everyone here has tremendous strengths. But there's something in the human heart that takes these gifts, that takes these talents. Think about it. Your intelligence, you did not earn that intelligence. It was given to you so in a way. They say, scholars will tell you, 70% of your intelligence is inherited. Your looks, what makes you beautiful, You didn't earn that. Well, I guess today some people try to earn that, right? They, they, They can do stuff today, right? But your looks, primarily, you were born with those looks. It was given to you. It's a gift. We tend to take these things and we use them as a basis for hostility. We say this, this is why I'm special. This is why I'm unique. This is what makes me an acceptable person. This is why I'm known. We make them our identity, essentially. We make them our identity. And what happens is we look down on anyone who doesn't have these gifts, who doesn't share these gifts. We say, you don't add any value. What do you do? What do you know? What do you have? What do you add? And we take that that concept, and you take that to an even higher level. We say, our social circle, what do you have that makes you deserving? Right? We say, our racial group, what do they have? What makes them special? Because we're special. We're worthy. We bring them up to the level of socioeconomic classes, cultures, countries. We judge a lot of people. We judge others based on these distinctions. Our color, our language, our status, the neighborhood you live in. These are the things that create a dividing wall. And uh, basically what we say is, oh, those people, they're not like us. Those people are weird. Those people are not like us. They don't think like us. They don't live like us. Or... On the flip side, we say, what makes you so special? Who do you think you are? You act so righteous. Instead of saying, we have gifts that are distinct, you have gifts that are distinct. We're also very flawed. You're also very flawed. You're distinct with gifts, and you're distinct with flaws. God is using us in our gifts. God is using you in your gifts. Instead of doing that, what we do is we shake our fists at each other, we turn our noses away from each other, or we exclude each other because we don't share in these gifts. We love to take these strengths, we love to take our talents, we love to take our gifts to lift ourselves up, to magnify who we are, To the things that we believe makes us acceptable, that makes us so distinct so that we can feel a sense of worth. And so we use our looks, we use our wealth, we use the neighborhoods we live in, we use our status, oh, and we work hard to maintain these things. We work hard to get into some of these things, to get into certain societies, right? We also use our morals. We use our purity. We use our generosity. We use all these things. We use anything. Think about it. We use anything. That's the circumcision. You get it? That's what he's saying. That's the circumcision. We take these things. We make absolutes out of them. Scholars say what we do is we take this, we moralize them so that if you don't measure up, then you deserve to be excluded. And we have our ways of doing that. We have our ways of kind of leaving people out. That's what we do. And so we have people who say, you know, because they're not part of certain groups, they say, I have gifts. I have something to offer. I'm a good person. I'm talented. I'm likable. Serve me. Love me. Notice me. Who do you think you are? What, gifts do you, what, what makes you so special? What allows you to, to make these judgments? So either we use these gifts to keep people out, or we use our gifts to try to get in. And then the result is we're always looking down on somebody, and there's the reason for our jealousy, and there's the reason for our arrogance, and our pride, and our comparisons, and the hostility, and the division, That's what we do. If it's not race, then it's going to be socioeconomic status. If it's not that, it's going to be your educational status. If it's not that, it's going to be how you look, how you dress, where you live, how you live, what you do. There's always going to be something. We love to act superior. There's a deep insecurity of the heart that makes us want to act superior because we feel inferior. And verse 15, Paul says, God destroyed the barrier by abolishing this law. He didn't abolish the moral law. When Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he didn't abolish the moral law. But he says, this is what he is abolishing. You're no longer going to be able to judge people according to this law. You're no longer going to allow yourself to feel superior against other people using this law. You're never going to be allowed to use this law again like a wall to keep some people out or you try to get in. God destroyed the barrier. That's the barrier. That's the hostility. Two, God made the two one. He made the two one by abolishing, right, by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law with its regulations, with its commandments, right? He made the two one. How did he do that? Verse 15. The purpose is to create in himself one new man out of the two. Literally what Paul's saying here in the Greek. He's creating one new culture Out of two distinct cultures. He's creating one new society, a whole new society out of two distinct societies. He's creating one new humanity out of two distinct natures. Which of these two? He's talking about the religious and the irreligious. Everyone is one of the two. In fact, everyone is both. We're all great. You could be the most irreligious person and yet have tremendous codes and ethics that you judge other, other people. You have certain standards by which you judge people. You're religious in your own way, you see. It's your way of separating yourself, making yourself holy, righteous. It means to be set apart, unique. Everyone is one of the two. In fact, we're all both. And so we're desperate constantly. There's this dynamic in our hearts and our souls where we're trying to get in and keeping other people out. We're constantly doing that. I want to say this. Friends, God is did not establish the church to be a social club. It's very important. It's very important. It is my mantra whenever people talk to me about exclusion and inclusion. God did not establish the church, the church, not just Metro, the church, to be a social club. It's very important. The reason why I'm sharing this with you and the reason why I'm saying it's very important for this particular community is because many of you grew up in a church where your parents or your friends relied on the church as not only a spiritual center but a cultural center, a language center, a social center. And so you're brought up thinking that this is the standard for the church. That is not what God came to establish. I'm telling you that is not. It's a, it's a kind of a byproduct of the immigrant church. Right, And so it's a part of the culture, but and you certainly are going to develop friends. You're certainly going to develop uh, circles and stuff like that in the church, but that is not the center and not the meaning of the church. And so generally the church becomes this place, if you continue to go that route, the church becomes this place where you keep people in, certain people are kept in, and certain people are, are kept out. And so if you're in, you're constantly working to stay in. And you're judging people uh, as to basically, there's a pecking order. And you kind of have to climb and step all over people to get up that pecking order, to stay on top, to stay in. That's what happens. Paul says that's not the meaning of the church. Jesus Christ created a new humanity where like and unlike can come together. The two can become one. That's what he did. Verse 16, in this one body, right, he made the two one, in this one body to reconcile both to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Religious and religious, like and unlike, hostile. He says he put to death the hostility through the cross by reconciling both Religious and irreligious, like and unlike to God. Because of the gospel, essentially, we all are reconciled to God and we share as part of this one body. And because of the gospel, we then as a result, because we share in this one body, this one humanity, we are reconciled to one another. It's possible to be reconciled to one another. We're a shared body. So, these differences that once fueled division, that once fueled backbiting, that once fueled gossip, is no longer something that fuels that division, or the gossip, or the backbiting, but now it becomes a very profound, impactful entity that shapes you and builds you. In other words, people are now coming together, not on the basis of their strengths, but what? On the basis of their weakness. It's a common weakness, They're not coming together on the basis of their talents, but they're on the basis of their inability, their inability to get to God on their own. As righteous as you think you are, you will never be able to get to God on your own. You will never have that kind of access on your own. So the one humanity is created when both are reconciled to God and they share in that humanity. People are coming together not on the basis of their gifts or their status, but on the basis of their brokenness and their shared humanity. And they become a new creation together in Christ. And they say, you know what? I have other friends. I have even closer friends outside of this place. But I'm going to love you not in spite of our differences, but because of our differences, through our differences, we create a unique connection together. I may have, that is very possible, that you may have a connection with other people. You may have a connection with other people that uh, when the gospel, when you experience the gospel together, it's not just assumed, but you actually experience it together. You deeply experience the gospel together. A bond develops that's even greater than one that you share with members of the same race or the same status with the same social circles. with the same family. I'm going to tell you. And guys, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. There are people here who are desperately trying to get in. And it's an assumption. I deserve to be in. I'm trying to get in. And you're still using the old way to get in. And it's not working. You're using the gifts, the sense of humor, the social things. And it doesn't. That's not what brings that bond. It begins with a shared humanity. That's what Paul's saying. That bond develops that's even greater than one that you share with members of the same race, or the same culture or language group, or status or social circles, circles, or your salary, or your family even. That church becomes a new nation, a holy nation set apart for God. We just read that in the call to worship. You are a people belonging to God. You are a holy nation. Set apart for God. This means that the value that God upholds, the values that God upholds, oneness, love, humility, sacrifice, weakness is greater than anything you valued that you used to separate yourself and make yourself feel special or unique or distinct. And so you don't frown at other people, right? You may be different, but you're not going to frown at them. And you're not going to talk against them right? Because you share in the same brokenness. If you truly understand your brokenness and sin, you would never be able to do that because you recognize how broken you really are and what it costs Jesus to bring you in. You see, how dare us, how dare we then turn our noses against other people in that way? That means when that happens, it's possible to gravitate more towards people who are utterly different from you, but share in the same conviction of sin and the same, they share in the same grace of God in Jesus Christ. They share in the gospel together. Then people, I mean, if you do that, it's possible to gravitate more towards people like that than people who share the same social caliber as yourself, same athletic caliber as yourself, educational financial, even the same interest, social interests, as yourself. And that means that it's possible to have a more profound, impactful, closer connection to someone who's completely different from you, even opposite from you, because you've experienced the gospel in a genuine way together. Because of your intimacy with Christ, it's possible to do that, to have a greater bond than someone who's close to you simply because you have old ties together. That's powerful. It's powerful because through that new humanity, through that new humanity, God can do something that he was never able to do through you before, that he was never able to do uh, through you as a group before, right? God can do something together in you as a body that he would never be able to do through you alone or in your own groups together you see that that that's a new humanity god can do something there that's very very special he says he will he says he will that's going to help you get over the divisions that's going to help you to get over the anger that's going to help you get over the pride everything that keeps you from living in peace peace is not outward hostility that's not what he's talking about. Not peace against outward hostility. There is outward hostility. There is gossip. There is backbiting. There is stepping over each other in passive and assertive ways. But he's talking about the peace that comes with just division, just being apart and saying, well, I'm not like them. They can do their thing. I'm going to do my thing. That's a hostility, he's saying. We want so desperately. It's in our spiritual DNA. We want so desperately to be accepted. And what happens is when you are accepted, you feel good about yourself. You're already losing yourself. You don't even realize it. Uh, And when you're not accepted, there's this air of superiority so that you can justify yourself. Because if you're not in here, but you deserve to be in, you're going to justify yourself. And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the first book of the Bible in Genesis. Genesis. When we chose to serve ourselves against serving God, we were cast out of the garden. So, when we violated God's law, even in the Garden of Eden, very, very early on, we were cast out of the garden. We were driven out. And ever since then, because God placed a flaming sword at the front of the garden, at the entrance, We've been desperate to try to get back in. That being in was more than just a physical thing. It was being in the presence of God, being, that experiencing that oneness and the joy and the shalom peace, that holistic peace, the sense of knowing that I am okay and that I am good, that I am set apart for God and loved and accepted and acceptable. We so desperately want to be in. Ever since then, we work hard to try to get in. And so we all know inherently, innately, that there's something wrong. It comes out in our insecurities. It comes out in our inadequacies. It comes out in our anger, in our pride, in our arrogance. When we're not getting what we want, we're not getting into the places that we want to get into. And so we're desperate. It shows our desperation more than anything. It's in our spiritual DNA. It's built into us. It's a part of our sin. It's a byproduct of our sin. That's why we act so superior. It's why we're arrogant, you see. It's why we emphasize our gifts and our resumes. It's why every single time you go on that date, that first date, you're more prone to sharing about your strengths and your gifts in subtle and crafty ways than talking about your brokenness and your weakness because we know that that's unattractive and repulsive and it would not make for a good relationship. We're afraid. We try to hide. You see that? We do that. And so we're constantly hiding Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, the first thing they did was they hid. You see, they blamed each other. There was backbiting. It started all the way there. It's why we emphasize those things. It's why we impose laws on one another. It's why those laws create separations, hostility. The gospel ends jealousy. The gospel ends snobbiness. The gospel ends pride. Let me ask you this. Do you have the guts today to turn to somebody different from you and ask them, am I arrogant? Am I snobby? Am I proud? Will you tell me? Do you have the guts to listen to somebody completely different from you, ask that question, and actually hear what they have to say? Do you have the guts to do that? The reason why you don't is because a lot of times we don't. We want to hide. We know. Deep inside, there's a it's in our DNA, we know that, you see. The gospel ends that. The gospel ends the jealousy and the snobbiness and the pride. The gospel ends the insecurity and the inadequacy. Verse 14, Paul says. The law and the commandments, they created this wall, a barrier between the Jew and the Gentile, uh, between the religious and the irreligious. Paul's literally talking, when he's talking about that, he's literally talking about a real barrier in the temple. Inside the temple, the temple was constructed in a very interesting way. You had an inner wall. It was an inner barrier where only Jews could come in where only the clean can come in. And they worship closer to God because the the centerpiece of the temple was the most holy place where God dwelled behind this great curtain, another wall. We're all trying to get access to God. So if you imagine how the temple was constructed, the inner wall consisted only of Jews, the religious, the people who lived according to the law. And they would make sacrifices so that they would be cleansed and they would enter clean. The outer wall, there was an outer barrier for people who were non-Jews, the irreligious, but they wanted some semblance of God. They wanted to experience what it meant to be near God. And so they would come in, and it was an outer wall. There was literally a barrier there. And uh, that's how the temple was constructed. Um, Essentially, those who obeyed the law were closer to God, according to the temple law, and those who were further from God, who didn't live in accordance with God's laws, they were kind of on the outside. That's how it was built. And so you had one group that was in and they worshiped and they were good people and they were obedient. You had another group that was kind of further away. They were distant and uh, they were irreligious. The gospel destroys that barrier. That's what he's saying because you no longer get your identity in a way that everybody else tried to get their identity in the temple. Everyone else today still tries to get their identity by accomplishing things, being successful, being obedient, being good, being moral. You see that? And, and, uh, and it's a way of looking down on groups of people. It's a way of separating yourself from other people, and you're working hard, and you're serving hard, and you're being good. And so you have the Gentiles who are very far from God. They had no law. They had no word of God. They had no Bible, and so they lived any way they pleased, and as a result, their lives were a mess, and they were considered unclean, but then you had the Jews, and they had the word of God, and they had prayer, and they had exposition, and, uh, and they were closer to God. They lived according to God's law. They were in the temple. They lived moral lives, but then verse 17 says, He came, Jesus came, and preached peace to you who are far away. And peace to you who are near, reconciling both to God through the cross and one another. He says both of them were preached to. Both of them still needed peace. Both of them were reconciled through the cross to God. And both of them, as a result, can be reconciled to one another. In other words, both needed the gospel Religious and irreligious. We have a lot of people here who grew up in the church. And you thought up until this point that the gospel was all about just being good, living a life that's acceptable to God so that you would be accepted and loved by Him. That's how you got your worth. That's how you, and it's easy to separate people who don't live that way. And as a result, you turn your noses away from them. You kind of stay away from them. And you did, it's a virtuous thing. I'm not saying that's bad per se. You did a good thing. But if you relied on that, He says, you need to hear the gospel preached to you. We have a lot of people who left the church over the years. A lot of people, we lost an entire generation of people in our world today, in this city for that matter, in our culture for that matter, because we thought that that's what made a Christian. And it's not. In fact, it's the opposite. That's what actually brings you further away from God. He says, the gospel was preached to you. The good news is preached to you you needed it both needed the gospel both needed to be saved even moral lawful people people who prayed people who lived in obedience they had the word of god they needed to be saved because they still needed they still needed to be reconciled to god why because they were arrogant that obedience made them arrogant that obedience made them blind to themselves that obedience made them proud of themselves They weren't only winsome, not winsome to other people. They had been distant from God as well. And it was because of their obedience, not because of their disobedience that they were distant from God. It was because of their obedience. They were far from God. And this is why the gospel takes away the barrier. You see, the gospel takes away the barrier because both of them are far from God. Both need to be reconciled to God whether it's a pastor or a newcomer in this church, we both need to be reconciled to God. We're both broken and need to be reconciled to God. There's not a single amount of education that you could acquire or earn in your lifetime that will bring you one step closer to God on your own. We both need to have access to God. And it's through the gospel. It says through the gospel, through Jesus. That's what happened. Yeah, these people who disregarded God's law and you have people on the other side who are consistently obeying God's law and they're judging each other they're constantly judging each other because both people are saying "Ugh, you know at least I'm not like you you know one group is saying at least I'm not unclean the other group says at least I'm not arrogant like you and both it's their way of saying well I'm acceptable but not you I'm worthy you're fake I'm not like you right both of them are selfish. Both are self-reliant. Both of them are arrogant. Both of them are hostile. The gospel pulls the rug right from underneath both. Right? Because the first thing the gospel does is what? It humbles you. It humbles you. You know what? The winsome quality of a human, a human who has come to the gospel is his humility. Because here's this arrogant, proud person who's been humbled because of his sin, broken by his sin broken by his need for Christ, what Jesus has done, his own righteousness transferred to him on the cross, that humbles him, that brings him joy because the weight of the burden of having to get, work his way back in is gone. That gives him joy. That makes him a completely different person. than somebody. That's how you can tell in some ways if a religious person has come to faith in Christ. Right? The Apostle Paul was a very uh, virtuous person so virtuous he became so arrogant and so proud that the rising group of christians in the synagogues made him so apprehensive that it drove him to the point of murder you see The first thing the gospel does is humble you because of your sin. Humble you because of your pride. Because you are a contributor to that wall. You help build that wall. You maintain that wall. It destroys jealousy. It destroys the nose turning. It destroys the comparison. And then it overturns what you value so that we're all pursuing righteousness in Christ together. You value your looks does that make you less of a sinner? It does not. Value your wealth. You may have a lot of good things in your life. There's one part of your anxiety may be pressed down if you have a lot of wealth, but the thing is, does it make you less of a sinner? It does not. You value your intelligence. Look at the Bible. Do a word study on the word intelligence and see how many times the word intelligence comes up in a positive light in scripture. It does not make you less of a sinner. Do you value your morals? There's, a, proverb, there's not a, proverb, a, a, a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and both are praying in the temple. And the Pharisee says pretty much this, I thank you that I am not like him. That's what the Pharisee prays. Do you value your morals? Because Jesus clearly did not because he says it's the tax collector and his prayer. Through his prayer you see it's he that walked away justified before God. Do you value your work ethic? Your educational background? Do those things make you less of a sinner? They do not. The gospel is the ultimate equalizer because everyone unequivocally is a sinner and broken by sin. Everyone. The gospel is the ultimate equalizer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Even your goodness, even your obedience is not what's going to give you a sense of worth anymore. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Because your identity is changed, it gives you a profound way of looking at other people. The way you view other people starts to change. There's no more dividing wall. There's no more hostility. The wall comes down. The hostility ends. This is why we have the end of jealousy and snobbishness and judgmental eyes. How does it happen? How does God become our peace? How does it happen? Verse 16, Paul says, God reconciles both of us through the cross by which he put to death their hate for each other. He literally says God got rid of hostility altogether. God got rid. He killed hostility. Now think about this. On the cross, what hostility did you see die? Because everybody was hostile against Jesus. The only thing that died on the cross was Jesus, we say. And that's the point. In John chapter 2, we have a temple. The temple had that inner court and outer court. And people were coming in to worship. And the Jews were able to worship well. They were able to come into the inner court. People were coming from everywhere, all over the world, to get access to this temple. And so you have this inner court for people who are considered uh, culturally, uh, religiously holy. And you had this outer court that was filled with people coming from all over the world, Gentiles, irreligious people, wanting to get closer to God. But the thing is, because the inner court was sacred, on the outer court, you had money changers. And you had animals because if you were coming from another country, the animal, by the time you get to the temple, would die, and then you'd be considered unclean. And so they had out of convenience. It was a good thing. It was a service to the people in the temple. You could just buy an animal there to have it sacrificed. And so, because people came from different currencies, right, different countries. You had money changes. It was a service. These were good things. But it was in the outer court and it was loud and it was distracting. And these people who were Gentiles wanting, coming from far to worship, couldn't worship. They were distracted. It was loud. And Jesus comes in and he sees this. So what does he do? He drives everybody out. He overturns the tables. He scatters the money changers and their coins, right? He gives a whip, the Lord of the whip, right? He takes this and he just drives everything out. And the people who are in the temple, they come to Jesus, they approach him, and they, the Jews, the religious people, they ask him, how can you prove your authority to do this? And what does Jesus answer? He says, destroy this temple. In other words, tear down the walls, and I will build it back up. I will raise it back up in three days. And John says, now looking back, The temple that he had been speaking of was his body. Why does he say that? On the cross, when Jesus died, his body was torn apart. His body was torn down. On the cross, his body was just ripped apart. And what do you see on the cross? You see, at the moment of Jesus' death, that curtain that separated humanity From access to God, organically, there's a thick curtain. The curtain was like a wall. It was a very, very thick curtain. It wasn't just a very, like the curtains we see today, a very, very thick curtain. It tore from top to bottom upon Jesus' death. It's as if somebody stood at the top, cosmically, from heaven, grabbed the curtain and ripped it from top to bottom. The curtain was the barrier. Because our sin prevented us from gaining access to God. That's why we're so desperate. All of our pursuits to get in is because we don't have access to God. That's what we've been looking for all our lives. You're trying to get into a social circle? That's what you need access to. You're trying to get into a love relationship with somebody? You're trying to get in You're working hard? That's the access that you're looking for. You're trying to get into the church, and you're working, and you think that's the way you get in. That's what you're trying to get in. You're trying to get access to God. The moment of Jesus' death, that curtain tore from top to bottom. Everyone's dying to get in. Everybody wants God's presence. But the thing is, if you get into the temple, the most holy place, you would die. You would risk death because of your sins. So what happened? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way you would get access to God is if you are righteous before God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Jesus, we are now righteous before God. And so the temple curtain tears from top to bottom because now it has become possible for anybody to gain access to God. Anybody can be declared holy. Anybody can get in. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus, who was perfect, became a sinner. That's not what it means. He didn't become sinful on the cross. It means he took our place. That's what it means. He became our substitute on the cross. We should have been destroyed for our hostility. We should have been placed on the outside. That barrier should have been placed between us and God forever, cosmically forever. We should have been torn down. We should have been slain. It should have been our blood that was spilled. Instead, God got rid of hostility altogether. That's what Paul says in this text. He got rid of hostility. He got rid of the anger altogether. He got rid of the, 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 the wrath altogether. What Paul's saying here is that God got rid of the hostility itself. He got rid of the barrier because on the cross, Jesus Christ took our penalty for the sin that we deserved. Jesus Christ got the wrath so that we could get the peace. God himself is our peace. We have access to God. Jesus Christ got the barrier on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm forsaken. In other words, there is now a barrier between you and me. God and the Father, God the Father, God the Son, one, united, the ultimate oneness. Their relationship, more intimate than any relationship you could ever fathom, put together in one, and it still pales in comparison to the relationship and the love and the intimacy that God shared with his own son. And yet, on the cross, he says, I am foreign to you. I am distant from you. I am forsaken by you. You have forgotten me. The barrier, there's a barrier between us. I'm out. Why? Why? Jesus Christ was cast out so that we could be in. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be accepted. He got the barrier so we could get the access. For the sin that we deserve, Jesus Christ got the wrath so we could have the peace. And so when he died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so hostility, wrath, was put to death. So, when Jesus Christ came into the world, what did the angels say? When he was born, Christmas, what did the angels say? Peace on earth. There is now peace. God himself is our peace. It means that God himself made a way and paid the price by losing and sacrificing and submitting and surrendering his own son. Instead of acting superior, he acted sacrificially. We're all gifted. And we're all flawed on one hand don't disregard your gifts that's not what we're saying here what we're saying is don't rely on them as a way of making yourself so distinct don't rely on them and don't use it to keep other people out don't judge people with it a lot of people here but i want in i just want is it so wrong to just want in with this group of people don't be so desperate because you're in you're in something greater and you've been called to something together serve together that's how you practice and demonstrate the love of god in christ if wrath if peace can be brought and substituted can, and substitute wrath surely your peace the peace that you received in Christ, God himself is our peace, can be used to substitute your hostility and your anger and your arrogance and your pride. And as a result, because you're in, on one hand, we don't reject other people. On the other hand, you don't separate yourself from other people. Metro has always been a place where the D church can come and are welcomed. Metro has always been a place where the D church are invited to worship and are welcomed. There is no inner and outer court here. There is no inner and outer court. Just because you are a leader in this church, that does not put you in the inner court and non-leaders on the outer court. That is an absolute. What makes this thing work is what? We all need the same gospel we all broken. In. in fact, there are leaders here who actually could probably learn from people who are not leaders because actually, they actually don't live as good of a life. It's the reality. If you don't recognize the reality of that, there's a problem there. We need to come back to the gospel. There are people here who actually live, who are leaders, who are pastors maybe even, who actually live worse lives than there are people who are members here. It is very possible. That is why it is so important to grasp it's not based on how well you've lived It's based on how well Christ has lived for you and how well he died for you and he lived a perfect life and he died the perfect death. Do you see that? Listen, there is no one circle that can accept everyone, right? No one church is perfect at accepting everyone. They're all gifted. They're all flawed, right? Every circle, every group, every church, there are gifts, there are flaws, there are strengths, there are weaknesses, there is a calling, there is a purpose. But when you come together, when these groups can say, you know what, I'm going to put aside my jealousies and my pride and my arrogance, and we come together, multiple groups of people coming together to serve together, not to fulfill any type of your, your insecurities, but to fulfill God's calling and His purpose for His people that becomes a very special community. And when you do that, that is how the world will see how in the world do those different groups of people come together and love one another. That becomes, it's supernatural. It is not natural. That is supernatural. And that is how the world will see that the gospel can change everything. You get that? I hope you do. I have to share that. It's in the Word But as your pastor, it's very important to understand that. We can live as brothers. Let's pray together.